Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back to Republicans Defeating Trump for our July 3rd weekly roundup. I'm Ron Steslow. Joining me on our panel today are two of my fellow co-founders and our executive director. First is independent political strategist Reed Galen and our captain on this ship. Hello, Reed. Good morning, Ron. MSNBC contributor, political strategist, and Lincoln Project co-founder Steve Schmidt. It's great to have you again, Steve. Good morning, Ron. And our executive director at the Lincoln Project, Sarah Lenti who has also served as a former director at the National Security Council under Condoleezza Rice. Good morning, Sarah. Hi, Ron. Great to be here. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about the Russia bounty scandal, election security, and you guessed it, the recent spike in COVID-19 cases. But I want to start today by talking about the story that broke last Friday. So the New York Times reported that American intelligence officials concluded months ago that a Russian military intelligence unit secretly paid Taliban-linked soldiers for killing American troops in Afghanistan. The Times' initial reporting included the fact that President Trump and the White House National Security Council discussed these bounties at an interagency meeting in March. After the news broke, White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany stated that neither the president or vice president were briefed on the matter. And on Wednesday, Trump himself tweeted that the story is a hoax. So Sarah, I want to go to you first, because you served on the National Security Council and Russia in particular, and I think the Moldova and Ukraine desks. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so Russia is is one of your areas of expertise. So before we dive into how damaging this is for the president, and I know that Steve and Reid have, have a lot to say on that matter, for the listeners, can you help us understand the context for this scandal in terms of recent history of the U.S.-Russia relationship? and Russia's MO on the world stage, because obviously this isn't the first time Russia has taken covert action against the U.S. Correct. And let's just set this up a bit. The relationship has always been adversarial. Um, America has always been the number one enemy for Russia. Russia's worldview, past and present, is grounded in its dissatisfaction with the West. So whether it was the Soviet Union or Putin's Russia, as we know it today, it's always been about preservation of the regime, the end of American hegemony, and the reinstatement of Russia as a global power. America, on the other hand, has viewed itself, and especially since World War I, as the superpower who holds responsibility to act as the global leader on the world stage. When you think about going from Peter to the Great to President Putin, Russia's always had an inferiority complex when it comes to, again, the West and especially the U.S. And our worldviews, it's always been us versus them, but for a brief lapse in the 80s when um, the fall of the Berlin Wall happened and then the dissolution, dissolution of the Soviet Union. According to, you know, you fast forward, you go from Lenin, where capitalism was the enemy, to Stalin and the Cold War, now to Putin. It's gone from capitalism being the enemy to a struggle over world dominance. And, you know, when you think about tactics, Russian tactics mirrored those used by the Soviet Union against its own people. So first it was the Soviets using massacres and the Gulag prism and the KGB intelligence service to intimidate and eliminate, you know, their opponents. And this is the system that Putin came out of. Recall, I mean, Putin 
was a KGB operative for 16 years. He then went on to serve as the director of the Federal Security Service, which was KGB's successor. He's now in his fourth term as um, Russian president, and he's working on a constitutional amendment to ensure that he can be a fifth or sixth term president. Um, Let's also recall that Putin's grandfather was Lenin's chef, if that tells you just how entrenched his family was into the system. I'll just briefly tick off a few. So, you know, he's added and abated the Syrian president, um, Bashar Assad. He's annexed Crimea. He's been rooting around in eastern Ukraine. He there is no free press in Russia. Journalists go missing and then they're found dead. He's interfered in the U.S. election and 37 other elections since 2004. He's long known to be, have been funding the Taliban and their arms. So this bounty story, it, it just falls straight into line with what he's been doing over the past 20 years. So, Steve, CNN is reporting that the president's resistance to warnings about Russia has led his national security team, including those who deliver his daily brief, to brief him less often on Russia-related threats to the U.S., presumably because he doesn't like what they have to say. And the New York Times reported that the information was included in the president's daily brief and was included in the more widely distributed World Intelligence Review, commonly called The Wire, uh, on May 4th. So what does it say about the state of the American presidency that the commander-in-chief can't be bothered to read his briefing materials about active threats to American soldiers on a battlefield? What it means is that the office of president of the United States has been desecrated by Donald Trump, that this is the bar none single greatest dereliction of duty in the history of the American presidency. In fact, it's the single greatest dereliction of duty for any American that's ever been charged for substantial with substantial responsibilities uh, for the lives and safety of men and women that they swear an oath to protect. It is extraordinary that the president of the United States would recommend Russia's readmission to the G7, that he would withdraw troops from Germany, knowing this, that he would help achieve Russia's, Putin's ambitions, and execute wins for Russian foreign policy. It's just, it's just flabbergasting. And Shouldn't at the same time come as any surprises if we've as we've watched him be enthralled to the Russian Federation now for years, for years. And going back to the Republican convention in 2016, the odd removal and the platform of condemnation of uh, Russian aggression in, in the Ukraine. It, it, it's extraordinary to watch uh, a president of the United States so enthralled to a Russian leader. We've never seen anything like it in our long history. Reed, if we had a functioning Congress that worked during this administration, what would be the repercussions of this level of negligence or complicity for any U.S. president? Well, before I move on to um, to the the complicity that is the Republicans in the Senate, I mean, I think the other piece, too, is that if you look at the coverage of this so far— you know the the Trump Donald Trump and his campaign in White House have always been very very talented at making his doing two things around his worst acts one making it a process issue or two somehow invoking his ignorance as a defense and I think that you know that's the time for that was over from the moment he took office but it's certainly over now if he didn't know 
or he chose not to know, or his briefers didn't want to tell him because they didn't want to upset him, it really doesn't matter. He's the Mm -hmm. president of the United States. He's commander in chief of the military. And so if and when anybody in his orbit is aware that Russian security services are paying $100,000 a head to hunt American soldiers and Marines like they're white-tailed deer, Mm. then he is ultimately responsible. It doesn't matter whether or not he doesn't like to read or he can't concentrate for more than five minutes or the briefing book sits on the Resolute desk collecting dust. He's the president of the United States. And I think that everybody needs to get out of the process stories and into the substance of this. Just as we're sitting here, Ron, the yeah. commandant of the United States Marine Corps said that the, the 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 families of those Marines who were killed in Afghanistan are owed answers about what happened. Mm-hmm. He's absolutely right. And mm-hmm. so I think that, you know, that's one thing. I think on the on the you know United States Congress piece, I mean, look, we saw that during impeachment, they left the Senate floor like Cheshire cats, knowing they got away with something on the Ukraine piece, which, you know, at some at some point, may, most of us probably thought that that was, you know, the lowest that this guy could go. And now we yeah. know there's just never going to be a bottom while he's in office. And now, you know, they they stare at, you know, they stare from behind their masks with, that, you know, those dead eyes when reporters ask them questions in the Capitol in the Capitol hallways. And, you know, that's not going to change because what they found is that they were with him when they thought he was going to sort a reelection in January. Mm -hmm. And now, Mm -hmm. because they've done nothing but support him and because they've always been afraid of the nicknames or the mean tweets, they're now stuck with him. And so rather than defending the United States military, defending the Constitution and defending, frankly, just right and wrong, right? Just just the simple decency of, of the young men whose lives were lost in Afghanistan, some of which because of these these operations, these programs, just shows you how little they deserve their offices. And so, you know, I think from my perspective anyway, it just doubles down that they didn't have much to run on anyway once they decided they were on the Trump train. And now they have even less and they have a lot to answer for from their voters. Can I just talk process here for a minute, Ron? Yeah, please. So um, when you're the, the president every day receives a presidential daily brief, the PD. Be. And this is an important document. Intelligence, you know, entities in the federal government compete for space in this briefing. If it's important enough to be in the briefing, it's important enough for the National Security Advisor to know, for the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, the President, et cetera. They knew about this in March. They knew about this earlier in March. There were PDFs on the, or, sorry, PDBs on this going back to, I think, even the year before. Um, so somebody they knew and it was important enough they were reading it the national security advisor knew it and again you impete you compete for space in that brief it had been in there multiple times so it's just it's a complete dereliction of duty to not to not respond to not take action apparently we knew there was a menu of actions that they were considering i don't know you know the, the president constantly just hands it over to putin kind of um he gives him a pass again and again and again. And he was more focused on making sure he was had a seat at the table, the G7, than dealing with this situation at hand. And it's just gross negligence. There's just a couple points, you know, to add, to add to that, which is know exactly what happened here. Now, put aside from the, for just a moment, academically, the fact that he's lied to the American people 20,000 times and he's completely lying about not being briefed on this. Um, which of course he, which of course he was briefed. What, what you, what you, you, we all saw it. We saw it when 
he was scrolling through his phone at the White House as small business owners were talking about how they have been affected and suffered through coronavirus. And now we see the United States as the epicenter of death and suffering. Our citizens barred from entry into Canada and Europe because of it. We see the economic calamity that's resulted from it, from his disinterest. And he sat there in the same way, no doubt, staring at his phone, distracted, disinterested, doesn't want to hear it. It's not about his interest. It's not about his reelection. There's no money in it. What does he care? When, when a United States Marine salutes him as he boards the stairs to Marine One, how does he look him in the eye? Mm. Commander-in-chief of the Armed Forces of the United States is a singular honor. Imagine the honor it would be to be the president of the United States of America, to stand in a tradition of service and stewardship of the Constitution of the United States that extends back to George Washington and to see his debasements of the office, his degradations of our institution. He is an appalling appalling leader without any comparison in the history of the presidency. And this incident is just a singular grotesquerie in a, in a long list of abominations of conduct, of probity, of rectitude that we've seen over three and a half years as he has divided this country, weakened our standing in the world, and made the future for our kids a little bit less than it was going to be. And the work of digging out of this disaster is going to take many years. And it's going to take a commitment of an American people to go in a different direction from this terrible administration without compare in the whole of the history of the United States. We've all been fortunate enough to work in the White House, um, and it is an honor without peer in my mind. Um, and when you work there, you are surrounded by members of the United States military, enlisted, non-commissioned, commissioned, flag rank, and the president even more so, right? Whether or not it's the Marines that Steve mentioned on, you know, on the helicopter, whether or not it's the Marines that stand outside the Oval Office, whether or not it is the military aid that carries the so-called football, <clears throat> whether or not it's the, you know, the various, uh, you know, admirals and generals that come see him. Um, and so the question is not only, you know, when Steve says, what does he think when he looks in the eyes of that Marine? The answer is he doesn't think anything. He doesn't think anything about that Marine. And the question I have is, what are those Marines, what are those sergeants, chief petty officers, colonels, generals, admirals, what do they see when they look at him? They see, they see someone who betrayed them. They see somebody that is an unfathomable curiosity to their code, to their values, to what they're trained to do, which is to love, right? To serve is to love, to love the person next to you, to take care of them. That's the ethos of the United States military. He stands against every core value of courage, of honor, of character that are necessary in the lifeblood of a nation. As, as, as much so as, as blood in the veins and air in the lungs for a human being. He stands opposed to all of those. A cadet will 
not lie, cheat, or steal. Duty, honor, country, semper fidelis. These words have meaning, and they extend back to the beginning of the republic through tradition and sacrifice. And he is an affront to them with his very existence. And for the first time, we have an American president as commander-in-chief who is just fundamentally and profoundly indifferent to the lives and welfare of those people. It's a disgusting betrayal. Mm -hmm. And it won't stop until the American people rise up and put a stop to it and vote this dangerous fool out of office. Steve, speaking of voting, I think that's a good segue to our next topic, which is election security. On Tuesday, USA Today reported that Senate Republicans quietly stripped a measure requiring presidential campaigns to report any attempts by a foreign entity to interfere in a campaign from the National Defense Authorization Act. Earlier in June, the Senate Intelligence Committee approved the measure by an eight to seven vote. And this provision came after a February Gallup poll found that three in five Americans were not confident in the honesty of our elections. So, Reed, let's start with you on this one, because mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm bewildered as to why the Senate Republicans would oppose a measure like this, given, given everything we've dealt with for the last couple of years. First and foremost, let's, let's just take a pause, the fact that you even have to put this into law. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, Steve, and I, again, as, as honored as we were to work at the White House, we were all lucky enough to work on presidential campaigns. And, you know, from my perch on the 2004 uh, re-election campaign of President Bush, if someone had ever come up to me and said, hey, you know, you guys want some help? I got an idea for you. The first thing I would have done was I would have marched over to the campaign manager's office and I would have said, here's what just happened. And from there, we probably would have called the FBI mm-hmm. because it was unimaginable, even that short time ago, that you would ever entertain something like that. Um, secondly, I think it speaks to the weakness of a chairman like Marco Rubio, who clearly, uh, like a jellyfish goes with it, whichever tide is blowing or ebbing or flowing, I should say, Mm -hmm. um, that he would strip this out. Um, why, why anybody who cares about our democratic institutions or believes in our democratic institutions would think that that was a bad thing is beyond me unless they believe that maybe in the future they can take advantage of it. Um, and so, you know, it's just one more thing. Where I think Republicans, and I say this is hard to say as a former Republican, uh, you know, have decided that it's easier to make it hard for folks to vote because we know they don't really believe in what we say, as opposed to you know f- competing in the marketplace of ideas and ideals to get folks to come across the line. And so, you know, Sarah and I spent the last two or three years in the election reform space and the democracy reform space, and to see this stuff. Uh, you know, there are millions of Americans, individual Americans who have very little partisan leaning one way or the other, but take this stuff incredibly seriously. And after we've seen the abominations in Kentucky last week, the abominations in Georgia previously, the trouble in Wisconsin, now, you know, now Donald Trump's, you know, you know, blatant and clear uh, desire to try and, you know, sow some sort of instability and illegitimacy into the, you know, vote by mail or absentee ballot process. Like they have, they have lost whatever ideology and belief systems drove the GOP is gone and is singularly about amassing and retaining power at this point. And that is, that is dangerous. And, and for someone who grew up in the Republican party 
and who believed it to be a great institution that wanted to make the country better, regardless of how you felt about it. It's, it's in some ways heartbreaking. So, Sarah, I want to go to you because the backdrop of all of this is Russia, obviously. Mm -hmm. And if you read between the lines, that's what this is about. And we already know, uh, because it was widely reported after the 2016 election, that Russia interfered to benefit Trump. We know that. And U.S. intelligence has already warned that similar attempts are underway as we speak, as we record this podcast. It's happening. What is Russia trying to achieve with these attacks? Yeah, th- Russia's trying to destabilize democracies all across the world. And I know that might sound, you know, like hair on fire, but consider they've meddled in the affairs and elections of at least 27 European and North American countries since 2004. I can name a few. Bulgaria, Czech Republic, Estonia, Georgia, Germany, Poland, Norway, I mean, Turkey, Ukraine, I, the list goes on and on. The interference range, the tactics range from cyber attacks to disinformation campaigns. And when you think back to um, 2016, for a lot of Americans, the question of Russian interference came out of nowhere and it sounded kind of crazy. And, you know, but honestly, this has been part of the Russian playbook for more than a decade. And um, it's about undermining democratic institutions in different places, whether it's the U.S. or you name the country, the goal is to make the institutions of democracy look not credible. It's about to question you know, whether the institution is corrupt and whether or not you can trust the vote. And they then he manipulates that to turn it into, a, you know, a campaign against whether it was Hillary so that, you know, he could whoever can whoever most benefits Putin wins. And to what end? They're 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 destabilizing democracies all over the world and their sights are set on the United States right now. To what end? I don't know that we're, we I don't know that we've seen the end. I think we're just beginning. You know, the cyber attacks and the disinformation campaigns, this is all new. We weren't dealing with this 40 years ago. This is new. So I don't think we've seen the extent of of what can happen here. And I don't want to sound like an alarmist, but I think that's the truth. Steve, in the history of the United States, when have we seen the Congress, or I should say more specifically, uh, the traditionally hawkish Republican Party, so spineless and... Uh, uninterested in defending the country from attacks that we know are happening, that they know are happening. They are utterly supine. That is true. But I don't think they're disinterested in defending from attacks. It's just that the attacks that they're interested in defending from are tweets by the president of the United States. And that ranks higher on the list of things to care about than the Constitution of the United States and the American Republic her defense and their obligation that they took in a oath to defend it. And so it's just an incredible, incredible moment. And when you think about Marco Rubio stripping that provision out of the bill and reads exactly right, you know, some Russians or anyone approach, Hey, we want to do something nefarious in the election. We had dirt on the opponent. You call the FBI, you look at, All of this in the context of the massive corruption, the extortion of Ukraine, it's unfathomable how fast, how quickly, how decisively Donald Trump has been able to pervert the institution of the presidency and the idea that we're a nation of laws with no person above it, no person below it. And we're at a low moment. And the American people will have to deal with this, have to repudiate this, or we're going to live in a very different type of country. We see 
We see a rescission of democratic values all over the world. And we see increasingly that a Republican Party is no longer a small, small L liberal party. It seems disinterested in the voting franchise that as the party shrinks, held hostage by its own extremism, it seems that the only calculus for winning is to deny people the right to vote, which is fundamentally fundamentally illiberal. It's what it's what you see. It's autocratic creep in the Republican Party that is very very disturbing, and it is heartbreaking. It's a tragedy to watch that happen. So here's a here's a question for any of the three of you that want to take it, and maybe all of you want to. But this all of this information is alarming to a lot of Americans who are eager to vote in a secure election this November. What do you say to those folks who who are listening to uh, us talk about ongoing attacks by Russia to destabilize our democracy, to, to compromise the security of our ballots? What do you say to those folks right now? What can they um, do? And, and Sure. So yeah. what I would say is that they, um, you know, and this is this is about, I mean, there's the Russia piece. Um, and then, you know, there's the, the president himself, which is is more damning than even a foreign power doing it. Um, you know, go to your go to your state's website um, and maybe, Sarah, we can work on getting this information on our website is, you know, how do you can you apply for an absentee ballot? How do you apply for an absentee ballot? When do you have to do that? How do you vote it? How do you return it? Um, if you want to make sure that your vote is heard and your vote is your voice is heard, I should say, and your vote is counted, you know, make sure that if you have the opportunity, I would I would apply for that absentee ballot as soon as you can. Um, we don't know what November is going to look like from a COVID perspective, and I know we're going to talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. But you should assume that it's going to be worse than it is today, unfortunately. And if you don't feel like you're comfortable going and standing around hundreds of other or, or thousands of other people. If you have seen that the leaders of your state or the chief elections officials of your state uh, are making it more difficult to vote, either with you know uh, you know reducing the number of polling places or any of the other things that they have within their sort of executive authority, then you know get out and figure out how you can you can get that vote by mail ballot that that absentee ballot. There's already five states that do this. You know Republicans, Democrats. Just remember that for years Republican you know, political operatives have taken it as, as a measure of faith mm-hmm. that making sure that their voters could vote by mail was a way of locking in a number of votes that they could secure prior to election day and also reduce their target universe to make their targeting and their get out the vote efforts more efficient. Mm-hmm. So now it just must drive them crazy when Donald Trump tweets that, you know, vote by mail is is not secure and it's open to fraud. And then you, as I think I mentioned last week, then you see a bunch of guys in like Grand Rapids, Michigan, burning their absentee ballot applications. Yeah. Like yeah. it just, it's like, it's, it's just one more illustration of how the guy's brain has absolutely no connection whatsoever to traditional electoral politics. I'd just like to say too, that the only person who can stop you from voting is you, right? But you, you will be able to vote. There are people doing things to make it harder to vote. And you, you just can't allow them to succeed, right? That this is that, that voting now in this time, it, it, it's an act of defiance. It's an act of condemnation against the travesty that we've witnessed in this country for the last three and a half years. 
It's that there's an hour coming where the American people can strike this down. Strike it down. Send him back to Mar-a-Lago where he can live out his life in the ballroom telling stories about his various defacements to our institutions, our alliances, remembering with glory the wreckage that he caused, like some Confederate general sitting on the porch of the old soldier's home in 1915. Yeah, I mean, to Steve's point, I whether you're Gen Z or I don't care what generation you are, make sure you're registered to vote as a first step. I mean, I think we take that for granted. So just make sure you're registered, do everything that you can, read what you need, encourage your friends to register and and vote. Yeah, and I think I said this last week, but you can call your, if you're not sure how you're going to vote this November, and you're not sure you're going to be able to vote in person, you don't know what the plans are in your uh, in your district, in your county, you can call your secretary of state, you can call your board of election, you can call your county clerk's office, whoever it is that oversees elections where you live, you can call them and ask them what their plans are to allow safe and secure voting this November. So start making your plans now. On Tuesday, Dr. Anthony Fauci testified before the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, also known as the HELP Committee, that he would not be surprised if the U.S. sees new cases of coronavirus rise to 100,000 a day. Over the weekend, Fauci told CNN that a coronavirus vaccine may not be enough to quell the outbreak, since nearly one-third of Americans reported in a CNN poll that they would not try to get a COVID-19 vaccine if it became available. This comes as 38 states reported a rise in coronavirus cases over the last two weeks, according to the New York Times. And also on Tuesday, the Pew Research Center released a poll showing only 19% of the GOP is satisfied with the way things are going in this country. This is down from 55% in April, and it is a massive drop. So, Reed, how much did Trump's positioning on coronavirus response lead to the spikes in places like Arizona and Florida and Texas? Um, well, I, th- I think first and foremost, again, we, we need to get out of this whole, whole idea of positioning like there was no comprehensive response, right? I mean, he he ignored the warnings. Some say go, going back as far as December to the, um, you know, to his intelligence and public health officials didn't take it seriously until really the rest of the country had started freaking out about it sometime in mid March and doesn't take it seriously now. I mean, there was a there was a clip of Joy Reid, uh, you know, all the different times he said it's going to disappear, it's going to disappear, it's going to disappear. It's clearly not going to disappear. So he has not responded. He has not galvanized, you know, the federal resources, which is the greatest collection of resources and assets in the history of humanity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's never been more stuff, more people and more money available to anyone ever than this man has available to him. And he refuses and is unable to do anything with it. And so what I, and then I think there's the political aspect of it with, yeah. with governors like Ron DeSantis in Florida yeah. Greg Abbott in in Texas and and Doug Ducey in Arizona, for which like th- for some reason they decided that it was you know more important to not upset Donald Trump than to protect their citizens. You've got a guy like DeSantis who two weeks ago was you know lambasting the press for you know making you know scaring people. Well, this is scary, right? I mean, tens yeah. of thousands of cases are going to pop up. More people are going to die. More people are going to lose their jobs. Look at look at a city like Houston. 
It's, I think, the third largest city in the country, as I think I've said before. Mm -hmm. It's going to shut down. Some of these companies, small companies, service companies, restaurants, coffee shops, they ain't coming back. They're not coming back. And so, you know, I think that it is one of those things where, you know, I mean, you take like a governor like Mike DeWine of Ohio, right? Solidly conservative Republican governor was not going to, you know, didn't care what Donald Trump thought about anything, had a role, had a position, had a responsibility and a duty as the chief executive of his state, regardless of political party to do the things he thought were important. And then you see guys like these other folks who now just, just now Greg Abbott's like, oh, I think I have a problem. Well, you always had a problem, governor. You just refused to do anything about it because again, of the mean tweet. And let me just say one last thing is that I think that, you know, for too much of our politics, and I think we've talked about this before, this politics and, and, and really in serving, maybe politics is performative, but serving in office has a performative aspect. But if you can't actually do the job, yeah. then it doesn't matter whether or not you got elected. And I think that's what you're seeing with guys not only like Trump, but also like DeSantis, um, that they, for them, sitting in the governor's mansion or sitting in the Oval Office is doing the job. That's not it. And, yeah. and so I think that there's also a need, you know, not only for, as Steve said, for voters to rise up, for, you know, America as a whole to make its voice heard, but frankly, to start demanding competence in the yeah. people we elect. As I think we've talked about previously, you know, political choices have consequences. And because, you know, we're, you know, we're mentioning these four guys, they're going to have thousands of dead Americans at their feet. And, you know, Doug Ducey and his state just had to go to, I don't know exactly the term for it, but basically saying that the doctors in the hospitals, you know, now have the authority um, to make the choices about who's going to live and die Yeah, because yeah. We, we're overrun. Yeah. And, and Dr. Fauci's right. And then you have, let me just say, as I'm on my soapbox, then yeah. you have another guy who's the lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, who said he's not going to listen to Dr. Yep, Fauci anymore. Because yeah, you know what? He's the, he's the talk show host. He's the yeah. talk radio host who was elected lieutenant governor um, and now says, you know, he remember, this is also the genius who said he was OK with old people dying to save the economy. So, like, I think there's a lot of retribution, politically speaking, that needs to come to these guys when they're up for reelection here in a couple of years. Let me um, let me just add to that, too, that. This whole thing is just a singular clusterfuck in all the history of the country in an extraordinary way. There's, there's, there's nothing else like it, the incompetence of the, of the response to this. Now, with, with, with regard to the 30 percent of the, of the country that refuses that they won't get a vaccine, Herein lies a fundamental problem, right, that, that Reed touched on with these leaders. These people are insane. Now, my, my view is that that's a constant number in the history of the country, right? We've, we've always had about 30% of the population is nuts, maybe a little less, maybe a little bit more. You know, it's not for nothing that the Tiger King gets 26% of the vote in a primary in the state of, state of Oklahoma. So the, the issue, though, is that we have leaders of government, Abbott being one of them, DeSantis being one of them, that are terrified of being tweeted at by Donald Trump and are held captive by this 30% of the population, which is batshit crazy, but is decisive in a Republican primary, for example, which means that all of the normal people in the country are held captive 
by the craziest people in the country who have the most control over the most spineless people in the country, which is our high-level political class. So you think about courage and its absence. I mean, good God, of all the things to be afraid of, like a tweet, a tweet, right? And nobody's asking any of these people to storm Omaha Beach. But the consequences of it now, and we should, we should talk about it for a second. We are the number one place on earth of coronavirus death and infection. And Reed's exactly right about us being the most prepared country with the most resources to deal with it. Coronavirus is the fastest causing, fastest cause of death in the United States. The more people die of coronavirus now in America than anything else. The infection rates are now, in some places, the highest they've ever been. So the entire lockdown that we did was for nothing, was for nothing. Had a president get up there and talk nonsense for months at a time, these daily briefings, inject Lysol, take bleach, it'll all magically disappear. One third of black Americans know someone who has died of coronavirus. And everybody's going to catch up to that number by the time this is over. We will, we will all know somebody who dies of this. Um, it's going to be in all of our families. It's in at least 130,000 so far, and that's millions of people then affected. Millions of people have a contact with someone who has died unnecessarily because of this, because we have a fool sitting behind the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office. We have a political class is filled with too many nut jobs and cranks and ideologues. And we have forgotten, but are now reminded that when we pick these people and put them into high office, these are life and death decisions that happen with these jobs, starting with the presidency. And we have, we have no chance, none, zero, of any of this getting better and beginning to move beyond this unless and until we repudiate Trump and then repudiate all the people who enabled him right through the beginning of the season of death that now lingers over this country because of the combination of ignorance and imbecility and poor judgment and weakness that are the hallmarks of this era, of the Trump administration, and of the president. So, Sarah, when you look at this really dramatic drop in Republican satisfaction. The potential of another increase, as Steve's just been talking about in daily coronavirus cases, or I should say the likelihood, and the potential that even a vaccine won't stop the threat. How do you see Trump's failed response impacting Americans on the ground and and even personally? It's affecting Americans in a major way. We're sitting here in the middle of the summer Kids are supposed to go back to school in August. My twins are supposed to start kindergarten on August 17th. And we're sitting here in Colorado. Nobody has a clue as to what's about to happen. They were supposed to go back. And now the governor's rolled back bars and different things. So for many single parents, um, we don't know what, you know, do you hire help? Do you remote learn? Do you, you know, it's, it's just a huge question. I, my heart goes out to all those, you know, parents who um, are 
you know, both working and don't have options for childcare, what are they going to do when the school year starts? And so there's just all these questions, all this uncertainty. It's impacting kids. I know after, you know, I don't know your experience, Reed, but after being holed up for two months, mine didn't want to go outside anymore. They could, they could brief you on what the coronavirus, coronavirus was from watching the news. So this is a, it's a new kind of weird normal for children. And I think also about all the parents and all of the individuals who have lost jobs, you know, what it's just, this is, it's devastating. And there's no, for people in the service industry, there's, there's nowhere to go. And it's great to get a PPP check, but there, there, there's months and years ahead of this thing that they're going to have to, you know, they're needing to crawl out of. So I think the impacts are going to be devastating. Um, and it's, we're just at the front of this. I, can I just add something to that? Like, I think that there's this really real sense that Sarah just like totally hit on. It's like, you know, is how much smaller and less than everybody's life is from before this. You're cut off, you're trapped in, and none of it had to be. I mean, it's such a it's such an epic failure of of government. You know, with a with a few exceptions, right? You saw, you know, you the, the the people you want in office. You want the Charlie Bakers. You want the Larry Hogans. You want the Andrew Cuomo's. You want the Mike DeWines. And then and then you have a class of of politicians in there that that are just and and all the Trump governors um, that are in the cult of personality. Um, you look at Texas. I guarantee you. This wouldn't have happened if Rick Perry was still the governor of Texas. No way. Look at how Rick Perry handled the Ebola virus outbreak. I mean, the level of incompetence in Texas. Um, you need somebody with the capacity to run essentially a nation state. Um, and you look at the idiocy. It's a, it's a lethal idiocy. Like the stupidity is getting people killed. And, and there's another aspect to this, too, with, with regard to the 30 percent of people that are refusing to take vaccines. And, and I think that there's a there's 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 certainly a connection when you look at the videos around the country of people refusing to wear a mask, throwing their food out of the grocery carts, going nuts in the stores. And it's and it's this connection, I think, between the mental health crisis we have in the country. And we definitely do. And clearly what one of the main means of agitation for the profoundly mentally ill people that we're seeing on these videos is right wing news media and the conspiracy theories that it sells. And it has organized itself in a way that you have a whole class of crazy people acting in a way that is so injurious to the majority of the people in the country who just want to get back to work and get on with our lives. And it's all fueled by the chief, our president. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree with, with Steve on that. And I think that, you know, there's, I mean, the, the, th you know, Dr. Fauci, I think was a, earlier this week or late last week, um, was on a radio, did a radio interview and was asked about the, the partisan nature of wearing masks and it's about a minute long, and, and if we find it, we'll we'll post it. But he basically said, "This is you know we're a great country because we believe so highly in the in the individual and our ability to do the things that we want to do and live our lives the way we want to live." He said, "But the but the other part of that is that we we are a community. You know, no one lives by themselves. No no man is an island, whichever philosopher said that. 
Um, and so the idea is, you know, if you want to leave your house, right, then do the thing that is, no one's asking you to like go live in a prison cell, right? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense other than the fact that you now feel aggrieved. And so I feel like it's the same people who put don't tread on me stickers on the bumpers of their car who've never been tread on in their whole lives that also feel like wearing a mask is too much, right? It's just, it's just, it's, I think it's, it's, it's bananas the way Steve talked about it. But I think also too, the way Sarah was talking about school. And I know that, that, you know, my kids, uh, you know, my wife is, did her darndest to be a homeschool teacher. Um, it's not something that, you know, we were prepared for. And I think we came through it, but you know, the fall is, is, is still unknown. But I would say this is that it is the indication that I think so many of us are missing. I think so many of our political class are missing is that things, first of all, this is not going to be over on January 20th, 2021, when Joe Biden takes the oath of office and 365 days from today, it might not be over. So everything is different. And when we're through this or when whatever day we finally say that, you know, we've, we've achieved the vaccine or herd immunity or whatever, with all of the attendant deaths, right? Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, with all of the attendant loss in jobs, tens of millions, with all of the loss in economic part productivity. And Steve said all of the pieces that the sociological and the societal damage that will come from this, right? That, that kids will be fundamentally changed in the way that they grew up because of this. Like we're not yet like understanding, I think as a body politic that like, this is not a normal time. It's fine. Most, most generations don't have, you know, abnormality is, is more likely than the, the, the normalcy of daily life. Right. And we've seen that we had nine 11, we had Katrina, we had the, the, um, the stock market and the economic meltdown all in the two thousands. Right. So these things happen far off, far more often than I think we like to believe, right. They're not black swans, they're white swans. And so I think from our perspective, it's one of those things where you have to say, we must do this. It will have to be different, but to bring it back to why we're all here, it can't start until Trump is ushered out of the Oval Office, you know, next January. I um listening to you, I um recalled a dream that I had earlier this week, um, which was I was seven years old again and you were my teacher <laughs> looming at me through the screen read. And well, it was if it, if it makes you very feel better, disturbing I'm not as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then with regard to the quote, no man is an island, I don't know who said it, but I listening to you. No, no, that I'd was like Island's think in it the was Rogers. It was a metaphysical poet by the name of John Don, by the way. There you mm, go. Okay. Wasn't Kenny no. Rogers. No, so it wasn't Dolly Kenny Parton. Rogers. No, that was Islands in the Stream. It was a duet. Mm. Sarah? I, I just want to touch on something. I don't think, I mean, we've all been impacted. It's really difficult. But the level of despair, I think, is something that we don't think about on a daily basis. People have lost family members and said goodbye via FaceTime. I mean, that the impact of that is is horrible. The people that are out of jobs, I, I again, you go to the kids. I think about the single parents that don't have an option this fall. It's just this is really, really, really bad. To Steve's point, it doesn't have to be this way. And and I, I feel very blessed to have a job. And my heart just goes out to all those that don't. And I just I I I, I, I it's unfathomable. So I just it, it's just the president. I I wish he had taken this seriously back in January when he was first briefed. Sarah, as you're looking at the week ahead, 
what stories are you going to be paying attention to? Well, we put an ad out on this this morning or a spot. The president's headed to South Dakota to Mount Rushmore on the 4th of July, and I'm very interested as to what he's going to say, um, and I'll just be watching for that. Steve? Developments with this Russia story as all the White House lies fall apart, and you know, of course, the coronavirus tragedy that's unfolding around the country. And you know, lastly, the uh, president's political predicament. He's under pressure. He's falling apart. His performances have been terrible. And we'll be watching closely in the story, kind of the next chapters of his delusion, his enfeeblement, his incompetence. And you were paying attention to that every day, obviously, and watching people suffer because of it. Reed, the week ahead. Um, the week ahead, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see now as we're getting into the summer, you know, for uh, these uh, national political conventions. Uh, I worked at, I don't know, three or four, I think. Um, you know, I spent three months in Philadelphia uh, for the 2000 Bush convention. And, you know, they're having to make these changes. But I'm interested to see as the summer goes on and in a place like Florida where these coronavirus infections continue to spike, whether or not a city like Jacksonville is going to start pushing back on uh, the president and the Trump campaign to say, like, do not come here. Mm. Do not do not have your event here in our town. Don't bring your thousands of people, um, you know, and, and so to see how, uh, you know, if DeSantis, you know, ultimately finds whatever little core might be within him to, you know, start to take his job seriously. I think these other governors too. Um, but to see how, you know, they're going to have to reorient themselves. It would not surprise me ultimately if like Trump gives his, re you know, renomination speech, like in the ballroom of Mar-a-Lago or Doral <laughs> or something. Um, but I think, you know, you're going to see this and especially as, you know, he and Pence continue to move around the country. Um, how do you go into places, you know, and look, I mean, they've been, they've, they've both been to Arizona twice in the last week because they know Arizona's electorally about to fall off the cliff for them, but they don't appear to care, uh, that their visits there highlight the fact that, um, you know, that the, the cases are spiking. And so again, I think it just goes to a total disconnection between the world that this white house and this president sees and like what most Americans are going through right now. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.